All right, we're going to move on in back into the book of Isaiah. Let me just preview of upcoming um, events, if you will. Uh, we get into Advent next Sunday's first Sunday in Advent. And so the series for the four Sundays starting next week will be in John chapter one. We'll be looking through John chapter one at the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And then also want to mention to you that uh, in January, there is a Bible study starting up on Monday nights, January the 9th, on the book of Ephesians. Um, if you've meditated on Ephesians at all, you know just a glorious exposition of salvation and its impact on our lives, how we should be living. And so that study will start Monday nights, and you can go to gbclorton.com slash Bible study and get more information on that and register for it. This will be our last Sunday in Isaiah as we finish this portion, and then we'll come back in January as well and take about four or five weeks and finish up the book. But we have really reached the pinnacle of the book. This is kind of the, 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 the critical point because from the very start of the book, there has been this crisis that God's people have been facing, a seemingly impassable uh, divide between God and the people of Judah, whom Isaiah is speaking to. In all of God's creation, man holds a unique place. Amidst the stars in the universe and all of the creation and variety in the animal kingdom, human beings are given the distinction of being created in the image and likeness of God. We are unique amongst all of creation. We are treasured above all of creation. Human life is sacred because it is made to uniquely reflect the creator. That's why the breach between God and man is so stunning. And, and Isaiah gets to it right at the very beginning. I'll remind you again from chapter 1, verse 2 of Isaiah. God said, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, they have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. We know Isaiah was speaking truth to the nation of Judah, to the Jewish people who made up the nation of Judah. But even in these opening verses, we're already getting a, a preview of the universality of, of what the problem is that, that God is addressing through Isaiah. And that is the zenith of God's creative work, man, is at odds with its creator. Man is in rebellion against God. The Jews in particular, the direct descendants of Abraham, had at, at this point in history, we've seen largely jettisoned any loyalty to God. They are beginning to look like the neighboring nations and, and carrying on in, in the worship of idols. They are uh, have lost accountability to the Lord, driven by selfishness and fleshly desires. God is essentially some distant deity to whom they, they perform some sort of ritualistic deeds from time to time as they've been in the habit of doing, but nothing from a true sense of worship. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. All of humanity enters life at odds with the Creator. We are all self-absorbed, driven by personal desires. At, at our core, man wants to run his own life and pursue his own pleasures in opposition to God. Every person enters life as hostile to the one who made us and who knows what's best for us. But the breach is of our own doing. It is because of our sin that we are separated. And it is, it is that sin that also makes it impossible for us to merely bridge that divide on our own. 
We, we cannot just fix this on our own. God must act first. God must initiate salvation. God must be at work to provide a way to reconcile man. As one writer put it, for God to wait in the lonely isolation of his moral perfection for us to come to him would be to wait for all eternity, because we would not. And he made that way through his servant. And that's what we looked at already in Isaiah 53, the end of 52 and 53 last week, that God has provided a way showing how through his servant he will be able to reconcile man to himself, that there is a sacrifice that will be made that will allow for the forgiveness of sinners, their pardon in sinless perfection, the servant who is coming, who is, we know Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah, would take our place and give his own life and bear God's judgment for our sin. He would die to pay our penalty. So what does that mean? And that's really where Isaiah 54 comes in. Isaiah 53 is, is a marvelous passage in showing to us what we would call the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. It, it is laying out for us, this is how God can save sinners. A perfect substitute who is Jesus Christ is put in your place and he bears the punishment for your sins and, and that is to make atonement for your sin, to, to put you at one with him and to make you right with him. And so then the question that we might ask then is, okay, then, then what? what? What does that actually mean? What does that produce? And that's really what Isaiah 54 begins to speak to in, in terms of application, if you will, of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 54 is meant to say, this is what that can mean for you. Because of what the servant has done, this is what's now available to you. It's not merely some doctrine that you know, though it is, and it's a critical doctrine and you should understand it. This this is what God wants to pour out on you. And Isaiah 55 then will say, and this is how you must respond. This is the, the benefits and the blessings, and this is now your calling to respond. And so Isaiah 54 uses three images to show us clearly what the death of Jesus Christ can mean for sinners who are estranged from God. Hopelessness and despair can be reversed, a relationship with your creator can be restored, and all the brokenness, the ravages of sin can be rebuilt. So let's start with the first one, Isaiah 54, verse 1, first of the three images he uses in these, this chapter. Sing, O barren one who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud. You who have not been in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Because Jesus Christ, the servant, gives his life in sacrifice, because he has come, the hopelessness and despair of your life can be reversed. The, the illustration here is of a childless woman. Childlessness, for anyone who desires to have a child, is painful. It is particularly so in the ancient world because there's the stigma attached to it that, that you must be cursed in some way. If you are barren, you must have done something wrong to be unable to have children. That image, I think, helps connect with everyone who has despaired 
or felt hopeless on account of their sin. If you've, if you've tried to find meaning, hope, if you're looking for peace, contentment, something lasting, something enduring in, in, in all sorts of ways, and none of it is providing real contentment or real peace, then, then you have a sense of that feeling of despair, that sense that n- none of what I'm doing here, none of what I'm studying, none of what I seem to be following here, actually gives me hope, much like this barren woman who is experiencing the weight of something significant that's missing from her life and not seeing any hope of that, of that being reversed. So when the Lord then says, at the beginning of 54, essentially says to the woman, have you seen what the servant will do? Have you, have you read what, what I just revealed to you about this one who is coming and what it is he brings And no longer will you be empty. And so therefore, he says, break forth in singing. That is a cruel command if there is not something substantial to back it up. To say to the barren woman, you have reason to rejoice. Break forth in singing. There has to be something that goes with that. And it is what God has just described in Isaiah 53, where he has said, I will not leave you empty. I'm not leaving you hopeless. Your despair can be reversed. Psalm 42, verse 5, familiar verse. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. We all face painful circumstances. We've all been through those kinds of situations. But as believers in Jesus Christ... We do have a hope that allows us to not despair. It allows us to not reach the place of thinking all is lost if you are trusting in the Lord's servant. In Jesus, there is such fullness of blessing that it would be like the barren woman suddenly needing a larger tent for all the children that the Lord is going to give her. And that's what he's describing there when he says to stake it out further. You you need to spread that tent out because what I am about to do will change everything in, in your life. There is such blessing coming. Now, in the near term, Yahweh is speaking to the Jewish people who will be coming out of captivity in Babylon. And we know that the, the, the first contingent that comes out from Babylon is, is really not large, tens, and th- tens of thousands, 40,000 or so, who come out. But it's a small group compared to what they've known before, and they are returning to a place that had been destroyed, that has lied in ruins for decades. And and so there's going to be that sense of despair, that sense of hopelessness as to what can we do here? How, How will we ever be a people again? How will we be a city? But what he's saying here to them in the near term is, I know it looks hopeless and desolate, but because of what the servant will do, there is endless hope. The people of God will multiply in unimaginable ways. He says they will spread to the left and to the right. Another way of saying they will, they will be from the east and the west. There will be, you will multiply as a people of God in ways you could never imagine. There will be people from all of the nations of the earth that ultimately will, will come to worship God. When the salvation The work of the servant now is put forth as good news. People from every nation will come to see Jesus as Savior. There is hope in your despair. There is one who is coming who will reverse that, who will bring unbelievable blessing. So verse 4 then says, Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. 
Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth, and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. Because the servant comes, because Jesus has come, despair and hopelessness can be reversed, and a relationship with your Creator can be restored. The portrait shifts now to a woman whose husband is gone. Verse 4 speaks of, um, of widowhood. Verse 6 will talk about desertion. The, the imagery is, is meant to point to what he says there in verse 4 of this, this sense of reproach, this, this sense of being in a, a fearful place in a culture where, whether it be desertion, divorce, widowhood, um, either any of those positions could be terrifying and, and lonely and uncertain. There weren't the kind of safety nets that we know in our culture. And so all of these were, were situations that, that made you feel alone and afraid. And at the other end of the spectrum, not only do you have the, the one, she's, she's lost her husband in some way, but then you have verse 4 mentioning the, the shame of your youth. Anyone able to relate to that? to look back on their youth and think of things that they are ashamed of, things that, that they look back on and they are not proud of, and you remember them and you, you wish you could put them away or wish you could have done that differently. We've all experienced this. So, so it's talked here about fear, the sense of now being deserted, and shame of your youth. But then look at verse 5. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth, he is called. For the Lord has called you, like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer." Into our fear, into our shame, steps the Lord himself coming with an everlasting love. Coming with something that, that no human being can come with. With perfect compassion and a love that is forever. This is what the death of the Lord Jesus Christ can mean for sinners who are afraid of the future or ashamed of the past or racked with guilt about things, this is what Jesus brings. This is what the, the promise of the servant and the blessing of the servant is. Our sin grieves the Lord. It separates us from him. And he makes that clear here when he talks about his anger and, and, and the fact that there was that, that separation. And yet he says in his great compassion, he gathers us from our fear and shame. It is his mercy that claims us back as his own. Though we are the guilty ones who carried on with our sinful passions, he is a gracious and forgiving husband who comes to us perfect in love. Verse 5 says, The maker is your husband, and yet he is the one that we have spurned with our evil. That's, that's the very point of that, that moment of anger. It, it, it is because of what we have done that we have caused that separation between us and God. And now he is the one who comes with a love that is everlasting. The suffering servant has brought peace so that we can be justified by the righteous work of the servant and made right before him. And so his righteous anger that would be justified is now exchanged for his abounding, everlasting love 
for you if you are trusting in Jesus Christ. These, this, this passage should bring joy to our hearts. It's rehearsing truths that we may already well know, but we need to hear again that our Savior comes to us with compassion and mercy. And what is prophesied with the suffering of the servant in chapter 53 is not some mere doctrinal truth that I recite. It is doctrinal truth, and we should know it and understand it. But it's meant then to pour out in chapter 54 into this incredible relationship with the same God whom we rebelled against and were hostile toward, who now has come to us and made us the object of his everlasting love, because we are now at peace with him. It is that, and it is so much more. Look at verse 9. He says, this is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. You understand, he's saying to those who come to him, who believe in him, that his wrath has already been poured out on the Son, and you and I will not receive that wrath. And he is saying, as sure as the promise to Noah, when the rainbow was put in the sky and I said I would never flood the earth again, you can know for certain that you will never be at the receiving end of my wrath. That is, a, that is an incredible promise to you and I, who also know our hearts well enough to know that, that we would deserve that wrath. But it has been punished in Christ. Colossians 1.20 says, Through Jesus, God reconciled us to him, making peace by the blood of the cross. God's steadfast love for us is the result of the peace that we now have with him because of what the servant has done. There's one more image in chapter 54. And it starts with just this first line in chapter 11. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted. It's from the rest of the verse that we'll understand that this is a picture of a city because he's going to talk about setting stones and laying a foundation. But because Jesus has come, the brokenness from the ravages of sin in your life can be rebuilt. This final image is this broken down city. Isaiah has used the word city a lot. Uses it a little more than 50 times in the whole book of Isaiah. And it's not, it is sometimes, but not always, referring to the city of. It, it, it's often used in terms of imagery because Isaiah wants to convey a truth and he wants them to, to see it in terms of a city. So, for instance, in chapters 24 through 26, he's using city in, in the, the language of the city of man and the city of God. There is this city. You, you all, you build these fortresses, essentially, and, he's, and he's, he's condemning them because they think this is where we are strong. This is our strength. This is our protection. These walls provide everything we need, and they are displays of our power. And then God comes in his judgment, and he sweeps them away to the point that when you get to chapter 26 and the coming of the Messiah, his people are singing, we have a strong city. God sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. There is an enduring city of God. There is a, a refuge that he will begin to speak of here that is for his people where they are protected, where they dwell, and that is the city of God. Here in Isaiah 54, it's a broken down city. That first line says it's been essentially storm-tossed. The, the winds coming off of the, the desert have pounded this city, and it has been beat up by it, and it is battered, and it is without comfort. No one's offering any consolation for this city. And then the, the description shifts. 
The word behold, look, he says in verse 11. And God then describes how he is going to rebuild this broken city, how he is going to, to make it majestic and he will transform the miserable ruins of what's left of this city into this marvel of precious stones and rich jewels. There's, there's words in verse 11 that you look at and go, well, what, what exactly does that mean? And it's just references to stones and jewels that, that would have been understood by, by Isaiah's readers. And he's saying this, this city will glisten. It will be fabulous when, when God rebuilds it. But that's, that's only part of it. That's just the external beauty part of it. There's so much more to this city. If you look at verse 13 of Isaiah 54, he says, All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. It, the external part of the city is glorious, but, but what he's really trying to say is the whole environment of the city has been transformed. There is new life in this city, and this is a glorious city. Jerusalem's past problems that we've been reading about in Isaiah have, have always come for the same reason. God has spoken, and his people have not listened. They have not listened, and, and if they have listened, they have not obeyed. They've not followed what he says. And, and he says, in this city, all your children shall be taught by the Lord, and they shall experience such great peace and safety. God's people will now hear his truth, and they will be transformed by it, and they will be grounded in righteousness. Outside threats will not disturb their peace. The ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy in particular, and we talked about this back at the beginning of the book, this is looking even future, I think, for us. We're talking about the, the rule of Christ, the, the millennium, and, and as you may see that, I know there's different ways that we look at the millennium, but ultimately the rule of Christ when he returns, and, and this is a picture of God's people in peace and safety in the kingdom of their Savior, and they are protected from all threats. And he says, I have, I have built this. And I am bringing you into it. So that 54, 17, when he ends the chapter, says, No weapon that's fashioned against you shall succeed. You shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. You will be secure. No enemy will prevail against you. We live in a day and time when, when the news is constantly filled with things that speak of threats and evil and violence and, and things that frighten people. And God is here to say, because of what the servant has done, I am building a kingdom. And within that kingdom, you are secure. You are mine. You will be safe in my city. But, but the word I really want you to notice out of where he ends this in 54, 17 is that last sentence. This is the heritage of the what? Servants of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. That word should jump out at us at this point. That word servants that he uses to describe his people. We have just walked through four servant songs from Isaiah 40 to where we are up through Isaiah 53 in the last of those four servant songs. Each one an unfolding of the description of the perfect servant, right? We've seen this word servant used repeatedly in Isaiah, but the servant songs have shown us there is one coming 
who will perfectly fulfill the will of the Father. He will come and do all that he has been given, and he will bring glory to God, and he will fulfill what he has been told to do, even to the point of laying down his life for we who have gone astray, we who have pursued our own means. This servant will give his life for we who have failed miserably to obey. Now here in chapter 54, we who trust in the servant... So therefore, as we know by the New Testament, we who are in Christ, who are believing in Jesus Christ because of his sacrifice, we are now called servants of the Lord. That's, that's a remarkable, remarkable description that he uses there. Now, now, again, we're familiar from the New Testament, servants, slaves, those who serve Christ. We see that, the, that terminology, so we're kind of used to it, and sometimes we're immune to the amazement of it that comes here, in that all of this time he's been talking about this one servant and how all of the other servants have failed miserably, how Israel, my servant, has, has been in need of redemption, and now he's saying, and this is the heritage. This is, this is what comes for the servants of the Lord. This is what I have for my people because we are now children of Yahweh. If you are trusting in Christ, we are now being made like Jesus. We are now growing into his image, being more and more confirmed to the image of the servant, the Messiah, who is Jesus Christ. And all of that just sums up what chapter 54 is all about. It is, it is the blessings the benefits, the joys that can be ours because of, solely because of, the suffering of Jesus Christ, because of what he has done. We can, we can have hope and peace and a relationship with him, and the devastation that sin brings into our lives can, can ultimately be rebuilt, and the Lord can provide redemption. By his suffering, he has made it so that God draws you near. And you experience his steadfast love. That's what you can have in Christ. And I've, I've been particular to use the word can in each of those descriptions in your sermon notes. Blessing that can be yours. Hopelessness can be reversed. A relationship can be restored. And brokenness can be rebuilt. Because now when we shift to chapter 55, what's clear is this is not just a, a, the way God works for everyone. That everybody gets this. The, the sort of universal idea that every person ultimately gets to heaven in the end or gets to some kind of paradise or gets to some treasure and there's, there's nothing after this life that's bad in any way that everybody somehow gets, gets delivered. He's saying these things can be yours. And then, remember, no chapter breaks when Isaiah writes this. The very next thing, Isaiah 55, verse 1, come. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear, and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David." So we've had the, the explanation of what the servant does in chapter 53, how he provides atonement for sin. We've had all of the, the blessing expounded in chapter 54. This is what comes as a result of what the servant has done. 
But now chapter 55, in three verses, there are 11 commands, 11 imperative verbs in just these three verses that, that, that are all expressing the same urgent point. Respond to this invitation. You have now heard this truth. You have heard what the servant will do. And you have, you have seen the benefits that will come. So, so don't sit there and think that you should just keep pondering this and putting it off and wondering about it. Maybe, maybe even being impressed. Oh, that's a wonderful story of sacrifice and love. What a great guy this servant will be. What, what, this, what this passage, these three verses are doing is saying, you must respond. It's not enough to simply admire the work of Jesus to think of him as some great religious scholar or some example of a good sacrificial life. It's not enough to simply hear a testimony like, like, like Kimberly's and say, well, that's, that's good for you. I'm glad that works for you. I, I hope that makes you happy, but I don't know. The, the servant who gave his life for sinners is, is calling you to trust in him. He is saying, come to me. Isaiah is imploring his readers, do something. No, no longer sit there and listen to this and consider it. But in light of the Lord's suffering, and in light of the blessings that that suffering has earned because of his suffering that are given to you, here's the invitation. And he makes it very clear, listen diligently. Three times in this passage, he's using listening terms. Listen diligently. Incline your ear, verse 3. Hear that your soul may live. So the invitation is, listen to what I say, and then respond. Come. Come and, and take of what I, am, what I am giving to you. Come and, and believe in me. Believe in me because you come empty-handed. There is no price you can pay. If you're, if you're listening to this at this point and you are not trusting in Jesus Christ and you are thinking, well, I, I mean, this is all great, but, but I've got no sacrifice to bring. I, I, I haven't had a very good life. I'm not sure what I would possibly come to him with. Then you're getting Isaiah's point when he says, you can't buy this. Come with no money to, to buy this from me. Well, that's the point. There's nothing you can bring to purchase this because Jesus has already paid the entirety of the price to bring you this, this joy and this blessing and this forgiveness. You must come, and the act of coming to him is faith. That is the belief that what he says is true. I've listened, I've inclined my ear, and I believe, and so I follow. Among the very clear lessons that we've seen over and over again in Isaiah is that God is serious about sin. He is holy and he hates sin. God does pour out his wrath on sinners. God judges sin and sinners. The, the Babylonian captivity is a, a clear lesson in how God punishes sinners. Sin is not to be taken lightly. You will stand before your creator. But through the suffering of the servant, you and I can experience full pardon of sin. The, the, the sweet work of, of the Lord to draw you to himself and give you peace. But you must come. You must 
turn from the direction you've been going and you must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in his death and his resurrection. This is God's gracious invitation. Don't bring money because you can't buy what I have for you. I will give you what you need. You must come in faith and believe in me. In verse 3, he ties all of these assurances back to the covenant that he made with David. This is certainly familiar to to Isaiah's Jewish listeners as they're hearing this preached. They're reminded of 2 Samuel 7, where God says to David, there is an offspring coming from your line, and he will have an eternal throne. I will establish his kingdom and his throne forever. How will God fulfill that promise when at a time the the line of David seems to be dwindling and, and going further and further into evil and rebellion? We know that God will fulfill that promise through the servant through Jesus. And when he reigns, it will bring good news of peace and happiness for all who submit to him and obey him. Jesus will quench your soul's thirst and your hunger. Jesus will give you that. But don't wait. Look at verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Doesn't abundantly pardon, that should just be a sweet refrain in our ears. Uh, The the glory, the, the depth of his pardoning of sin. But God's invitation here, God's invitation to come To listen and to respond in faith is not just some open-ended, it will always be there sort of invitation, and you can do with it what you want today. You can, someday or another, you can come back around to it, and and if you don't, don't worry, it'll all work out in the end. Even after you die, you'll still get another opportunity, because he's very clear here. Seek the Lord while he may be found, while the Lord is near. You are hearing his voice through his word now. You are hearing his appeal to you now. Respond now. Don't wait. Jesus is calling to you. And he's saying, don't wait. You've heard God's truth. You know, if, 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 if you are questioning what would happen to you when you died, if this issue of a creator and standing before a creator, you're not sure how that would look. He's saying, turn from the sin in the way you've been going and repent and come to me. Now, you, those of you who are trusting in Christ, you, you may recall when you had objections to the gospel or you may have shared the gospel with somebody and they, have, they may have raised objections. And one of the common objections that you might hear from somebody is, well, that's, that's interesting, but it sounds too easy. I mean, we're, we're, in, we're in a culture that's used to, I, I earn what I get. If you're going to talk about rewards, if you're going to talk about afterlife, it's going to depend on what I do here, and I'm going to have to earn something on, on that other side. So it's, it's all on me. And this just sounds too easy. You're saying I can come to the creator of the universe. You're telling me that I have offended him, and he is holy, and my sin offends him. And I can come to him empty-handed and say, I believe that your son died for me. That just doesn't make sense to me. That seems illogical. It seems too easy. So I'll, I'll keep trying to just do my best. If, you, if you've thought of any of those objections, if, if, if any of them are crossing your mind, then what Isaiah says next is meant for you. Verse 8, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, 
Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Christians recite these verses often. We do so as a good reminder to ourselves that the almighty, omniscient creator of the universe is infinitely higher than all of us, that, that we, we are not God. We, we can, from his word, begin to understand what he has revealed. We can begin to think thoughts after God. We can begin to learn to be like Christ. But that gap between us and him, we understand, is, is still there. He is still higher. He's still greater than us in, in everything. So we know this passage, but in the context of Isaiah 55, it is particularly speaking about his work of saving sinners. That's really the context here. It, it, it may not seem clear or right to you how a perfect God, a loving God, would send his son to be brutally crucified, to live a perfect life and love people and yet be brutally, unjustly crucified on the cross for us. And that he would rise again. And it may all seem, that just, that just seems illogical. And what Isaiah is saying, well, it may not seem right to you because your logic does not dictate the creator's design. You and I don't think like God. You and I don't match up to God when it comes to our plans for things. It, it, it may not seem right to you that your sins can be completely forgiven on the basis of another's suffering, but that is the design of the creator. And so don't, don't let that stand in the way of seeing in here a gracious design from God. Our thoughts, our ways, our feelings are distorted by sin. Everything we, does, we do is, is still somehow tainted by the effects of sin. And, 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 and so we are weak and limited in this plan of salvation. This is God's design from before the foundation of the earth. This is his plan. And, and, and what he's saying here when he offers this and says, my ways are higher than your ways is ultimately, trust me, put your faith in me. Even if you can't figure this out and come up with the formula that makes perfect sense to you, even if it doesn't, even if it doesn't fit together precisely and logically, I am telling you, my son has given his life as a ransom and you need to trust in me. And Isaiah is saying, of course you can't figure this out out to your, your complete satisfaction and get it in every detail. That's the essence of faith. It is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. You, no matter what you believe this morning, you're putting your hope in something. You've put your faith in something. You're, you're either trusting that when you die, you are trusting in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection, or you are trusting in something about what will happen to you when that day comes and what you will face. The good news Salvation is that your creator is longing to draw you to himself and that he has spoken this truth so that you might believe in him. And the authority for this, well, look at verse 10. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, all of that illustration to make this point, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, 
but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the very thing for which I sent it. God's salvation through his servant, his invitation to sinners to repent and, and turn to him, that may seem hard to comprehend, but that is God's truth. That is what the creator declared 700 years before Jesus Christ, 700 BC, Isaiah, the, 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 the book of Isaiah, just by the way, just a little historical fact, you can go back to the Dead Sea Scrolls, still long before Christ, have an entire record of the book of Isaiah in it. And so this is centuries before Christ. God is saying there is salvation in the servant. And so when the Lord says, this is how I have made provision to pardon your sin and calls you to turn from that sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we must rely on his word and the authority of his word. I, I will tell you this, everyone who is here, who is trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, there are things we may disagree on, but there are certain things that we hold together that we all believe. And one of the things that we all believe if you are trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior is that the word of God is true. And what it says about sin, your sin, and the Savior is God's design. It is God's good news. And there's no other way around it. That, that is what the word says. And you either, you either believe and put your trust in the authority of the revealed word of God, or you're putting your faith in something else. But Isaiah is saying right from here, this word is living and active. When God speaks, he affects what he says. And so when God says, Babylon will come and will carry you into captivity almost a century before the Babylonian army comes, and it happens. When, when Isaiah says more than a century before that when you're in captivity in Babylon, expect this guy named Cyrus, who's not born yet, and his parents aren't even born yet, expect him to come from Persia and to deliver you from out of that. And what happens? The historians know Cyrus was the one who came and defeated the Babylonians because God's word succeeds in what God says it will do. And that's what gives me the confidence to speak these promises to you and, and, and to know that if you are trusting in Christ, he will not pour out his wrath on you, even if we deserve it but he will not because he says he will not because he says he has made me his own and he is restoring and renewing all that is broken because of sin. That's what his word says. So let's finish verse 12. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. The trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. That reference in verse 13, he's, he's reminding them back at creation. He's reminding them of what theologians describe as the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3. It is when Adam sinned, when Adam was told to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and Adam sinned, the consequence of that was it immediately brought death. Adam and Eve began to die, and all of creation began to feel the consequences of dying and deteriorating. And so the creation, as Romans says, groans under the weight of that. All of that, God made happen on the earth because it was the effects, the consequences of man's sin. Romans 5.12 says, death entered through one man and spread to all men. We are all sinners. 
But Romans 5 then also goes on to say that the free gift of God's grace also came through one man. Death came through one man who is Adam. But the free gift of God's grace, that which is able to declare us righteous before God comes through Jesus Christ. And that is what the servant brings, and the effects of the curse will be reversed. And so that's why he's saying here that the, instead of thorns, the cypress, instead of the briars, the myrtle, there is coming a time when the kingdom of Christ reigns, and all of the effects of the curse will be reversed, and his kingdom will be established, and it will be a beautiful new creation, just as you can be a new creature if you will trust in Jesus Christ. If you will believe that the servant is who God's word says he is, if you will turn to him and seek him while he may be found, he will abundantly pardon. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we hold fast to the promises of your word. We stake our lives to who you say you are and who you say we are as our creator. And so we... We look to these things because we believe that in this word you have revealed yourself to be the great, transcendent, omniscient, omnipotent God, the creator of the universe, the maker of all human beings. And now you have unfolded for us this glorious plan from eternity past by which the Son comes and bears the penalty for sin, his death on the cross, so that all who trust in him would be pardoned fully for their sin. Lord, we rejoice. We, we join with the trees of the field as they clap their hands. Lord, we have every reason after reading this passage to be glad and joyful and thankful at what you have done, that your your salvation is not simply some doctrinal truth that has one facet to it, but it is this multifaceted jewel that just keeps exposing what it is to be loved and to receive compassion and to be cared for and to not be the objects of your wrath. What a glorious place to be forgiven because of what Jesus has done. Father, I pray that if there's anyone listening this morning who still still struggling with this, Lord, I pray that your spirit would, would do the work of opening their heart to embrace the truth about Jesus Christ, that there is no hope apart from him, that the, the joy we've experienced this morning through our sister's ba baptism and testimony, and then in the first service through Sam's testimony, both, both giving clear testimonies of, of the change in their life through Jesus Christ. His death and resurrection changed everything. We thank you for that and pray that you would use that and the proclamation of your word to draw sinners just like all of us to embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Lord, may we as a body of believers see the, the sweet treasure that this good news is, this treasure that we have, as Paul says, in earthen vessels, these jars of clay that our bodies are, that are wearing out and, and falling apart, that we carry about the, the glory of Christ himself. Lord, may we be faithful to proclaim with gladness this good news, this hope that is in Christ. 
Lord, thank you for those who have gone out from here, for missionaries that we support who have taken that gospel to other places. We pray that you would prosper their their proclamation, that you would bring fruit to bear on account of what it is they teach about the saving work of Jesus Christ. And give to us, Lord, both boldness and opportunities to speak these things into the the loved ones and the near ones in our lives who are so searching for hope and satisfaction and refreshment and contentment that we know, we know is found in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.